0: We are continuing our study of prolegomena. We're going to finish prolegomena tonight. And the next time we meet, which will be two weeks from tonight, there's no class next week. I did start it. Uh, We will start looking at bibliology. Now, who remembers what prolegomena means, roughly speaking? What does prolegomena mean? Well, that's... Vicki? First things. It means the basis. There's actually a prolegomena for any field of study that you want. The prolegomena for theology is the first thing that we have to get settled before we really jump in with both feet. These are questions of what is the nature of knowledge, what is the Bible like, how does philosophy bear on the way we think, etc.? Okay? Tonight, we're going to finish the material that's in the first set of notes for Prolegomena, and we're going to cover the entire second set. If anybody here doesn't have Prolegomena Notes 1 and 2, there are some more copies on the table in the back of the room. You don't really need them as we go through this class, but please do get them. Okay? All right. Let's talk about epistemology, okay? Here's another term, epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge, and it really refers to what's our understanding of the nature of knowledge and where do you get it, okay? We need to ask a few questions about what we believe about where knowledge comes from and how that bears on theology. Okay, epistemology is simply the study of knowledge where it may be found. Now, philosophers generally recognize two sources of knowledge. The first one is rationalism. We've looked at this before, right? Rationalism is what you can figure out with your mind. And Basically, those who view this as a source of information would argue that our brains are capable of actually discovering information on their own. Now, this goes all the way back to Plato and also to Descartes. People who emphasize this say that the mind is reliable, but your sensory information is secondary, and it's subject to error. You know, if you're drunk, you may see pink elephants. Therefore, you can't trust your senses but your mind tells you that there's no such thing as a pink elephant, so you can trust it. Well, I think you can see that that's not a very sensible defense of rationalism as a source of information, but that's the way they would they would think. Now, empiricism, this is the view that your sensory experience, what you can see, hear, feel, touch, taste, smell, is the primary source of knowledge people who emphasize empiricism as the source of knowledge would say that your mind starts as a blank slate and you progressively build understanding of the world as you interact with it. How many of you have kids? You've seen your children do this, right? A lot of information does come this way, okay? Now, I wouldn't say that either one of these is wrong per se, but the question is, Is either one of them, or are they both together, adequate for doing theology? Now what's happened is that modern philosophy has adopted the skeptical elements of both of these. So modern philosophers aren't really confident that we know anything very well. They would say, well, rationalism looks like a good idea, but your mind can be fooled. Empiricism looks like a good idea, but your senses can be fooled, so do we really know anything? And a lot of modern philosophy is simply skeptical and in despair about knowing anything reliably. Okay, I would say that a biblical philosophy of epistemology recognizes three sources of knowledge, okay? The first two that we've already seen, rationalism and empiricism, and the last one is, you probably know this, revelation. Okay, I'm not talking about the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. I'm talking about God revealing himself and his ways to us by his divine initiative. Him making the effort to tell us things that we could not possibly know any other way. Now, where does that come from? It comes from, he's put, he's put that information in what? In the Bible. Okay? Now, this goes beyond what you can know either by rationalism or by empiricism. Okay? Romans 1 tells us that you can know some things about God by looking at the world. It says that you can know that he's a great creator and that he's eternal but you can't go much farther than that. Okay? We need more. Okay? Now Hebrews 1 says that Christ is the ultimate revelation of the Father. John 5:39 says that the scriptures testify to the person of Jesus. We've already looked at 2 Timothy 3:16, scripture prepares us to know God accurately and to serve him effectively. So what God has done is he has stepped in to fill the gap that we could never fill ourselves. Rationalism and and empiricism aren't enough. We need revelation. Now, for people who are skeptical about the reliability of the Bible, where does that leave them? It leaves them in the dark, doesn't it? Okay? You can't really do intelligent theology without confidence in Scripture because you need revelation. Now, sadly, there are people who try to do theology without Scripture and they just end up in confusion, I would say. Okay, any questions about that? That's, that's pretty straightforward. I doubt any of you have any disputes on that, but do you have any questions or observations about that? You understand? Yes. Go ahead, Gary. So, are you saying if you only had Romans 1, there would not be enough? Well, I'm saying Romans 1 says that if you don't have a Bible, you can still look at the world. And know there's a God, know that he's powerful, know that he's a creator, and that he's eternal. Beyond that, you couldn't know that God is love, you couldn't know that he's holy or just, or that he provides forgiveness through his son or any of those things one way to say it is you could say that by looking at the world you can know enough that there's a god but you can't know how to get right with him okay you can't know him personally just by looking at the world and and we'll come back to this in, in a different kind of orientation all right now We're going to move on at this point to the material that's covered in the second set of notes you have on Prolegomena. There are three topics in here. Critical methods in theology, forms of revelation. Now, this forms of revelation is going to go back to what we just talked about. And then the essentials of an evangelical systematic theology. Okay? And after tonight, we're going to move on to bibliology, as we said. Okay, and remember, no class next week. Okay. Have Have any of you heard this term, critical scholarship? Any of you ever heard that term, critical scholarship? Okay, it's related to that, yes. Higher criticism. Anybody ever heard that term? Some of you have, okay. This is some of the stuff that we spend a lot of time studying in seminary. Now, as we go through it, your inclination is going to be to react to it in exactly the same way that I react to it, which is this is mostly a bunch of junk. But it's important for you to have some exposure to it because if you go into any theological library, even our church library, and look at commentaries or books about the Bible, you're going to be reading material by people who have varying degrees of confidence in these critical methods that we're going to look at. And sometimes knowing why they think what they think is helpful to you either in defending against the errors that they may be trying to convince you of or just following their train of thought and seeing what's useful in there. So I think it's important that we look at these at least briefly. Now the term critical really only means a deep study of something, looking at the details. But in biblical studies, the term critical methods, particularly higher criticism, as Bob mentioned, these have led to a very low opinion among scholars regarding the reliability of the Bible. Okay? Most of this work started in the 1700s. In the 1800s and 1900s, it was very popular. This was going on in the seminaries and universities and scholars were convincing themselves that you couldn't trust the Bible. Now, I think we can trust the Bible, and I would even say that in the process of these people attacking the Bible, they forced other biblical scholars to defend the Bible against their attacks. And that process of defense actually provided reasons for us to be even more confident that the Bible is reliable. Okay, so that's one of the reasons I think we should study this stuff. Okay, there are two kinds of critical study. Lower criticism would be the study. Here's Bob Defenbaugh's Hebrew Bible. Okay? If you read this Hebrew Bible, you will discover that there are little footnotes down here that will say, in this verse, some of the manuscripts spell the word this way or flip the order of the words. Okay? We have a large number of manuscripts, handmade copies of the books of the Old Testament, and we have thousands of manuscripts of the books, handmade copies of the books of the New Testament. And if you compare them, you'll see that there are small differences between them. Most of them are spelling, word order, things like that. In a few cases, you might have A few extra words in one manuscript that aren't present in another one. Like one might say the Lord Jesus and the other one would say the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Lower criticism is the study of the manuscripts and comparing what they're like in order to get good confidence about what the original text, the one that was written by the guy who wrote the book, what that looked like. Okay? We're not going to focus on this here. We may talk about that a little bit when we get to bibliology. Now, higher criticism is a study of what the Bible expresses. What does it say with particular attention to its origin, its content, its historicity or historical accuracy, and its truthfulness? Okay. So a higher critic is somebody who's looking at the Bible and he's saying who wrote this (coughs) what part of history did it come from what does it say and is it true okay now you can see that in the process of asking those questions if they come to a negative conclusion if they say the book of Daniel wasn't written at the time that Daniel lived then they're going to say that the book of Daniel is what it's a forgery okay or if they read something, they look at one of the accounts of one of Christ's miracles in the Gospels, and they say, that couldn't have happened. Now what have they said? They've said that it isn't true. They've said that it's fiction. Okay? These are the kinds of things that higher critics are studying as they do their work. Okay. Our focus is going to be on higher criticism. Now, there are three basic forms of higher criticism. One is called source criticism. One's called form or tradition criticism. And one's called redaction criticism. Stick with me, folks. I know this sounds really dry, but I'll give you a few examples as we go along, and I think it'll start to get at least interesting in sort of an annoying way, if that makes any <laughs> sense. Okay. Now, source criticism and redaction criticism are both used in the Old Testament and New Testament. Redaction criticism is almost exclusively used in the Gospels, and you'll see why. Now, why should we study this stuff if I've already told you that I don't agree with most of the results that these people come up with? Okay, I think it's helpful to understand what they're saying. If you understand what they're saying, then you can respond to it intelligently. I think it's helpful to be forewarned that there are people out there studying the Bible in fundamentally destructive ways. You need to know that. Don't ever assume that when you go to our library downstairs and you pull out a book about the Bible that you can trust what is written there, because a lot of what is written in those books you can't trust. And it doesn't matter if the guy says he's an evangelical, and it doesn't matter Just because he wrote a commentary on the Bible doesn't mean that he believes the Bible is true or historically accurate or unified or inspired or inerrant. For some reason, there are people out there who don't believe those things and they still write books about the Bible. Don't ask me why. I've wondered my entire life. (laughs) I I just don't know. Okay? The third one... Well, I've kind of said this. To help you understand things you may encounter in books about the Bible, it's good to look at Bible dictionaries or commentaries or encyclopedias when you're studying. They can be very helpful. Okay, But you need to approach them with an awareness that not everything these people say can really be trusted. Okay, Let's talk about the first kind. Source criticism is an attempt to discover written sources that are behind the text of a particular Bible. Now, for example, what are the first five books of the Bible called? There's a word for it. The Pentateuch or the Torah, okay? Those books, we believe, were written by Moses. If you go through those books, you notice something very interesting. You'll notice that there are a lot of different names for God. Okay, God is called Yahweh He's called Elohim um, I can't think of another one but there are several other names that are used Okay, if you go through the book of Genesis you see things that look like echoes you know the story she's, she's my sister how many times does it happen in the book of Genesis anybody know it happens three times that's right okay Now, some of these higher critics looked at that and they said, hmm, we've got different names for God, we've got repetitive stories. This doesn't look to me like it was written by one person. It looks to me like some guy took a bunch of stories that were written by different people and wove them together and attempted to make it look like it was one story. And they would argue, for example, that the She's My Sister story goes back to one legend that had been retold in different ways and this guy takes all this stuff and he puts it together and he pretends that he's moses okay now what the source critic tries to do is take it all back apart and see what the sources were he assumes several things he assumes that the current biblical books are compilations they're not the work of a single human author He assumes that they joined pre-existing documents and smoothed out the transition so they looked like one book. He believes that by studying divine names and doublets, you know, like those, a doublet would be where the same kind of story happens twice. In this case, it happened three times, she's my sister. You can find the components. Now, it is interesting you will find that in some chapters of Genesis a particular name of God is used repeatedly and the other names aren't. And you go to another chapter and you'll see the name Yahweh and you won't see the other names. Now these guys would say that's because one source came from a guy and and his name for God was Elohim. The other one came from another guy and his name for God was Yahweh. Well, there's another way to explain it, isn't there? the names of God express qualities about him, right? If the author is dealing with God as the covenant-keeping God, he may use the name Yahweh. If he's dealing with God as the God who is powerful over all the false gods, he may use Elohim. So there are reasons for the use of particular names to be segregated in different parts of the book. But these guys don't think that way. Also, if someone was you can like that mm-hmm. to go through oh let's change all the names of God Well saying. see yeah that, that, <laughs> that's right. We're going to get to that you you pointed out something very important. Next slide I think it shows up. These guys who do this generally don't take inspiration or inerrancy very seriously or they simply don't believe in them okay? And they believe that the people who put these books together were concerned with producing an end product that suited their purposes, not that expressed truth. Okay? In the Pentateuch, source criticism is often called the J-E-D-P theory. Some of you have heard that term. I, I can explain it to you later if you want to. I'm not going to now. In the Gospels, source theory is used to solve what is called the synoptic problem. Now, there are three Gospels that are called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic basically means the same point of view. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a lot alike, Okay, Their structures are very similar. They treat very much the same material. If you read any one of those three, you see a lot of the same stuff in roughly the same order. Now, the, supposed, the so-called synoptic problem is the question of, well, how do we explain why they look so much alike and yet why they look so different? Now, I think the answer is that the Holy Spirit had three different writers write down three different accounts of the same events from different viewpoints. And where they agree, it's because the Holy Spirit was leading them to use similar wording. And where they disagree, it's because the Holy Spirit was leading them to emphasize different things. But source critics who deal with the Gospels don't believe in the superintending work of the Holy Spirit. They want a human, mechanistic, scientific explanation of how those things ended up the way they did. And they do that by source criticism. Okay. I think there's one positive value of source criticism. It does remind us that in some cases sources were used. If you look at 1 Kings 11.41, you don't need to do it now, it speaks of sources that were used in compiling the records of the kings that we have in the Bible. That's about as much positive as I see, personally. (laughs) I'd probably get in trouble at seminary for saying this, but this is what I think. Okay, I think it raises doubt about the integrity and inspiration of the Bible books, I think it impugns the honesty of the biblical authors. I think that it assumes that the authors are incapable of using a variety of style or using intentional parallels in real events to emphasize the similar similarity of people's behavior. Um, I think it's wildly optimistic, and this is what Bob was talking about, it's wildly optimistic about the ability of modern scholars to pull this all apart when it was supposedly put together by somebody who lived way back then speaking his native language close to the events. And here we've got some scholar 3,000 years later who thinks that he can figure it out and take it all apart. I think it's just incredibly arrogant. I think it makes no sense. But I also think these guys are incredibly arrogant to think that they can find the little clues and pull these things apart. Okay. And I'm going to say that probably about all three of these. I think source criticism, and this is true of most higher criticism, it makes man the authority over Scripture rather than Scripture the authority over men. It's not our place to judge Scripture in the sense of saying, I know what's true, and if Scripture doesn't agree with what I know is true, then Scripture is wrong. I think that's a wrong approach to Scripture. Okay. The second critical method is form or tradition criticism. Now, the people who do this assume that the stories of the Bible were circulated kind of like folklore before they were written down. And the people who did most of this work got their basic ideas from studying folklore in Germany. Now, we've got folklore in America, right? We've got Paul Bunyan and Pecos Bill and all those tall tales. And every time you hear one of those stories told, it's a little wilder, isn't it? Now, these guys say, well, folklore develops that way. That must be how the Bible got that way. You know, Jesus didn't really do miracles, but the stories circulated and people embellished them and pretty soon he was doing miracles and he became the son of God in the stories. Okay? Okay, form tradition or former tradition criticism assumes that there was an extended period of oral transmission of the stories of Jesus before the Gospels were written. Jesus died in A.D. 30 or 33. The first Gospel was probably written in the 50s. It wasn't very long afterward. There were plenty of eyewitnesses present, and they would have said, no, that's not what happened. So I think that this is a false assumption. They assume that the stories about Jesus followed the same kind of development processes that folklore follows. Okay. They assume again that you can isolate different stories, such as parables, proverbs, prophetic sayings, legal sayings, etc., and that once you've isolated a kind of story, let's say, let's say you're looking at. Um, Oh, Jesus talking in Matthew 24 about the events leading up to the second coming. They would say that is a prophetic story kind of story, and we know that prophetic story kind of stories do certain things. So we'll just apply those rules and we'll find out what really happened. Now, They would say that by studying the present forms of the text, the stories or whatever, you can reconstruct the original stories and figure out what happened to them. Now, I wrote a dissertation many months ago. Do you think that if I handed you my dissertation, you could tell me what was in all the drafts that I wrote before that? No way. The information just isn't there. Now, these guys are saying, we can get back to the first draft by looking at the final product. It's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. <laughs> okay. They would also say that by examining the content of the forms, you can tell the life setting in which each story arose. They call that the Sitz M. Leben. This may be getting too technical, but they think that they can find out all kinds of things by getting behind the text and tracing a process for which we have no record. All we have is what? The final draft, if you want to call it that. Okay? Um, I think form or tradition criticism is helpful. It reminds us that in some cases the biblical writers interacted with eyewitnesses. Luke said he did. I think it reminds us that the oral preaching of the apostles was very important in the early church. They did tell the stories of Jesus before they wrote them down. But didn't Jesus say in the upper room discourse that I will remind you of everything? And I think what he's saying is when it comes time to write all this down, the Holy Spirit's going to be looking over your shoulder and making sure that you get it right. So I don't think that this process of development and accretions, adding things to the stories that never really happened, I don't think that is real at all. Now, I think this overestimates the time between Christ's death and when the Gospels were written. It assumes that things were added on, and I don't think that that happened at all, as I've said. Again, I think it's ridiculously smug about the ability of the modern critic to trace a process for which he has no evidence. And, you know, like the other method we looked at, source criticism, it undermines the reliability of the Gospels. It pictures the early church as being unconcerned with truth. They wrote down stuff that was folklore and pretended it was true. That's what these people think. I don't buy that. It relegates the gospel events to myths and legends and it effectively denies both the process and the product of inspiration. Okay, Our doctrine of inspiration tells us not very much about the process, but it tells us that the product is what? It's reliable. Okay, These guys are saying that the product isn't reliable. Now, this is the only time I'm doing this in this discussion of of uh, critical methods. Have any of you heard of Rudolf Bultmann? Okay. Well, I don't like him. (laughs) (laughs) He's held in great esteem by some people. I don't like him at all. He did form criticism on the Gospels. Listen to these things that he said. I do indeed think that we can now know almost nothing concerning the life and personality of Jesus since the early Christian sources, and by that he means the Gospels, show no interest in either, and moreover, are fragmentary and legendary, and other sources about Jesus do not exist. Does that sound like someone who has confidence in Scripture? Okay, how about this one? This one will just make you want to spit. Man's knowledge and mastery of the world have advanced to such an extent that through science and technology... Through science and technology that is no longer possible for anyone to seriously hold the New Testament view of the world. In fact, there is no one who does. (laughs) Doesn't this just make you mad? What arrogance! Okay, there's lots of stuff like that you'll find in higher criticism. Okay. Now the third critical method is called redaction criticism. This is almost entirely focused on the Gospels. People who do redaction criticism picture the biblical writers, basically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as creative theologians rather than historians concerned with truth, or even, I (laughs) can say, even theologians concerned with truth. Okay? They assume that the biblical writers were... Creative writers. You all know what creative writing is, right? We did that in high school. What does that mean? Fiction. Fiction. Okay, good. They adapted, they changed stories, they invented fictional material and even fictional characters to suit their purposes. You know, maybe there was no woman at the well. Maybe Lazarus is just something that John made up. You know, there was no Zacchaeus, but it's a nice story, it tells you something about what the church wants you to think about Jesus. That's the kind of thing these guys are saying. They would say that their motivations were theological rather than historical. They wanted to serve the early church by convincing the people who read the gospels to believe what the church wanted them to believe. They're not even people who do this kind of criticism. They're not thinking about Scripture as a revelation from God. They're thinking about the Gospels basically as church propaganda. <coughs> okay? And the people who wrote them were had the same aims that anybody who writes propaganda has. What's that? <coughs> to manipulate the behavior of people. Okay? All right. Now, these guys would say that by using form and source criticism that we already looked at, the redaction critic can tell what's not original and wherever anything is not original, he's going to assume that the writer made it up and then he's going to try to figure out why the writer made it up. Okay, So now we've got the errors of all the other forms and this on top of it. Okay, They would argue that, Jesus, that the Gospels don't tell us about Jesus but about the theology of the early church. And again, that's what the church wanted people to believe. Not really what the leaders of the church, knew about Jesus. They would argue that the church sort of whipped up the ideas about Jesus into something that Jesus never really was. And they generally think that the material in the Gospels must be assumed to be fictitious unless it's proved by some other method to be true. Is that a fair way to approach a document that claims to be historical? I don't think so. Okay. Positive value. It does represent, it recognizes that the gospel writers are theologians. They do have particular (laughs) interests. Okay? They give us different perspectives. However, it assumes that they had no regard for truth or very little. It assumes that the audience that the gospels were written for was this early church over which the early church leaders were trying to get control. Okay, They don't have much to say about the value of the gospel for us 2,000 years later. It views them as the writers as having personal agendas. It ignores the role of inspiration. Again, it's wildly optimistic about the ability of the critic to read the writer's mind. Now, all of these methods view the modern critic... He's really smart, and he can figure out what these dumb people who lived 2,000 years ago wrote down and didn't, you know, didn't cover their tracks very well. It's my personal opinion that the people who lived 2,000 years ago were probably vastly more intelligent than us due to genetic degradation. I'm not sure about that, but I think Adam was way more intelligent than us. Okay, their criteria for evaluating the sources and authenticity of the units of text is It's just highly subjective, and there's no way to verify what they say. And if you take two redaction critics and compare their views on the same passage of Scripture, they won't come up with the same thing, because there's nothing objective about this. It's basically making stuff up, in my opinion. Okay, now this one's important. The redaction critical theory is completely in disagreement with the New Testament writers' insistence that the historical truth of the Bible... And the accounts of Christ's life are vital to the message of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then your faith is what? Useless. Okay? (laughs) Could they have made that up and then said that? No. Okay? 2 Peter 1.16, Peter says we didn't make up stuff. We were eyewitnesses. We saw this stuff. Okay? They were concerned with truth. Okay, some final thoughts on this and then we're going to move on. If you think that modern critical methods are mostly worthless, you're right. Okay? They are behind that whole sequence of weird theologies that we looked at, remember? Liberalism, neo-orthodoxy, God is dead, all that kind of stuff. Those things arose precisely because these people attacked the authority of Scripture. Look where it got us. Okay? There are some small benefits. They alert us to false ways of thinking. And they've forced Bible-believing scholars to do their homework. Okay? And that's had some value. Okay? The result of these critical methods is that it's forced people who have a high view of Scripture to go back and say, well, can I defend against these charges? And in reality, you can And through that process of defense, our confidence in Scripture has grown, not gone down. Okay? Nobody's snoring yet. That's good. (laughs) I'm trying to make you mad. That'll keep you awake. Okay. Any questions about critical methods? Are you picking on me? You're making fun of me? Um, oh, as as in a Hegelian dialectic? Right. Yeah, well, yeah, I think you can, ac- you can actually see, if you go back and trace the history of this, it started in the 1700s. You can see how each one of these led to something else that led to something else that led to something else, and where did it get us? It got us to where we are today, where in most... Scholarly circles, scripture is viewed with very low regard, and the funny thing about it is that scripture does stand up to scrutiny if you're willing to approach it with an open mind. You know, there were there are lots of people who said um, Daniel has to be a fictional book because there was no such city as Babylon, and then somebody tripped over a rock in the desert and started digging, and there it was. Okay. There are people who said that the the book of Acts has all kinds of names for political rulers and offices and cities, and those things didn't exist in the ancient Greek world. And they said, can't be historical. And then as time has gone on, archaeology has discovered all of those things. And guess what? The Bible revealed it first. And the modern historians got it later. So, Scripture does stand up to scrutiny. And you know we're not going to do it in this class but the whole process of looking at those evidences that's what's called apologetics if you ever heard that term. Apologetics, apologetics is the study of evidence for the truth of scripture and its message. Okay, what, yes. What a, sort of a close cousin to this the creationism that goes on with textbooks and public schools and so forth. Sure. Sure. Um yeah, I mean, revisionism is a form of fire criticism. It's saying that the records that we have, you know, I mean, there are pe- there are people who want to say that the Holocaust never happened. They're saying that the documents that we have of the Holocaust, they were all, you know, they're all forgeries. The films of the dead bodies in the graves, that was all done on a stage. It's like the people who say that we never went to the moon, you know, They say Apollo. That was all done in a TV studio.
1: Um,
0: It's very similar. It's very similar. Okay, now we're going to shift gears and look at something a little more positive, and this won't take long, okay? Given that we need information about God in order to formulate our theology, where are we going to get this information? There are basically two sources of information about God. first one is general revelation. That's Romans chapter 1, okay? You look at the world, and you can tell that there's a God. But you can't tell too much about him. Then there's special revelation. Special revelation is what God must reveal about himself and his ways to us. Okay, these two go together. Now, I don't know if you can all see this. I hope you can. What we've got on this chart... If categories. Then going across here is what general revelation has to say about those categories and special revelation has to say about them. Okay. Two forms of revelation, general and special. Who receives general revelation? Everybody, all the time. Okay, as long as you're conscious, you're receiving general revelation. Even if you're asleep and you're doing, as my son says, studying the back of my eyelids, (laughs) you're receiving general revelation, okay? Because you're experiencing the back of your eyelids. Now, special revelation is only available to who? People who have the Bible. This is why it's (laughs) so important for us to get Bibles to people who don't have them. Okay, how about the content of revelation? General revelation tells us about God's power, his glory, and his eternal nature. That's basically taken from Romans chapter 1, okay? Special revelation tells us about his person. Tells us about the gospel, the nature of God, the person of Christ, Christian doctrine. Tells us all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of information in Scripture that isn't available in general revelation, okay? the nature of revelation. General revelation is impersonal evidence. Okay? This is in your notes, by the way. Um, Special revelation is written, verbal, propositional communication. It is essentially God talking to us. Okay? And remember, we said that verbal communication can do something that images can't. Verbal communication can take an idea from one mind and deposit it in the mind of another person. Okay? That's what's so wonderful about language. Language is a tool for transferring an idea or a thought from one mind to another one. And that's what God does in the Bible. He transfers his thoughts, what he wants us to know, not everything that he knows, but what he wants us to know, (laughs) from his mind to ours. Very special thing. Okay? All right. Means of revelation. General revelation uses your conscience, providence, human nature, and the natural world. Now, the reason I say your conscience is because Romans 2 says that everybody knows that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Even if they've got it, Even if they don't have it right, they know that there's such a thing as right and such a thing as wrong. Okay, that's part of general revelation. It's wired into us. But special revelation only comes through the Bible, and of course the illumination of the Holy Spirit is very important in receiving it. Okay? And finally, the sufficiency of revelation. General revelation is sufficient only to condemn. It's enough to let you know that there's a God and that you're probably in trouble with him. But it's not enough to get you saved. You have to have the scripture. You have to have the scripture in order to know who God is, how to get into a right relationship with him, and then how to live a life that is pleasing to him. Okay? Now, these two go together, but obviously, when we build our theology, where's most of our information going to come from? Special revelation. Okay. Okay. All right, now, we're finishing up Prolegama. Okay, let me offer to you some (coughs) essentials that we need to be looking for as we build our theology. Okay, we have to assume the inspiration and authority of Scripture. If you don't, where are you going to get information? Nowhere that's going to get you very far. Okay? We have to use proper methodology sound hermeneutics that's what we're talking about in the second hour we need to recognize progressive revelation we talked about this before right that God reveals a little more information about a given subject as he goes farther in time in the Bible we need to pay attention to the analogy of scripture this is just the principle that says scripture interprets scripture and we'll talk about that more in hermeneutics and we need to use logic okay? basic logic the rules of human language Okay, I think we need to recognize our own limitations. And what that means is we should not go beyond what is revealed, okay? 2 Peter says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. It does not say that God has given us everything we need to satisfy our curiosity about every subject under the sun, okay? And I think that's important. I think we must seek the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, If we don't, we're asking for trouble. We need to consult the entire Bible. You know, in China, there are people who say, I'm a New Testament Christian or I'm an Old Testament Christian. Okay? That's a huge mistake. Now, sadly, most evangelicals know the New Testament a whole lot better than they know the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is the foundation upon which the New Testament is built. We really need to consult all of Scripture in order to build a solid theology. And then we need to study the full range of revealed truth. Scripture talks about a lot of things. It doesn't just talk about who God is or how to get saved. It talks about how you should raise your kids, how you should love your wife, what you should do with your money, where your hope should be how you should interact with the government when you don't like the president, things like that, (laughs) in general principles, or when you do. Okay? Um, So we need to look at everything that's there. We shouldn't ignore anything. Okay. That's the end of Prolegomena. Um, If you have time, try to read through the Prolegomena Notes Part 2 that I gave you last week. And we will continue... Two weeks from now, and don't go away because hermeneutics follows, all right? But it's break time.